собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who make monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Belarus has been in political crisis for about a month. Mass protests erupted in response to the falsification of the presidential elections in early August. It was a count the Belarusian government claimed Alexander Lukashenko got 80% of the vote. The protests only grew when the state unleashed riot police onto peaceful protesters. A few weeks ago, Lukashenko's rule seemed to be on the verge of collapse. But now things appear to be at a stalemate. It's hard to predict what will happen, and things seem to have calmed down with both sides retrenched. So what's going on in Belarus, and how should we understand it? For the larger context for these mass protests and what they mean, I turn to Yelena Gapova for some insight. Yelena Gapova is a professor of sociology at Western Michigan University, specializing in gender, class, nation, and social movements in post-Soviet space. She's the author of many, many articles and books. Her most recent book in Russian is The Classes of Nations, A Feminist Critique of Nation Building. Here's Yelena Gapova. So um, I, I thought we, I, we'd start our, our conversation about um, the protests and the wider context in Belarus uh, just by having you introduce yourself. Well, my name is Elena Gapova, and at this moment I'm professor of sociology at Western Michigan University. At the same time, I have my connections to European Humanities University, which is Belarusian University in exile in Lithuania. Uh, so my background, I, I was born in the Soviet Union in, in what was then, you know, the Belarusian part, the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. And, and then in the 1990s, I started Center for Gender Studies at European Humanities University and, well, gender studies did not exist at the time because, uh, well, it was believed that in the Soviet Union this issue, this the woman question had been mostly solved. But, well, in the 1990s, the, uh, the attitude was very, was very different. Um, so, and then by doing this research on gender, I also realized the importance of this the projects of post-Soviet nationalism, which were, well, taking rise everywhere in the former Soviet Union because these were now independent states. And then at some point I, I arrived at class formation and intellectuals and these things. So this is my, well, background intellectually and, and factually. And I, I noticed from your from your Facebook uh, page that you've been following the protests uh, quite closely. Um, so what what is what is driving your your interest, and what do you hope to uh, do with with by chronicling it for people who follow you on Facebook? 
Well, uh, look, there's, of course, uh, an emotional part or and there's an intellectual part. And emotionally, I'm part of the community. This is my people. This is my country. And such unbelievable uh, events that are taking place in my country. And, and I'm a part of this, of course. And then intellectually, probably that's how my head is structured. Well, I need I need to get all the facts in, in one place, and then I need to, to, to structure the facts. And then I know that uh, we are living through a historical moment. And I remember how we lived through this historical moment during the perestroika. And it seemed that, you know, it, you're aware of it. And then the time, the, the, the time passes and, well, you have that, this general vision, but of course you do not have this timeline, this structure. So I've been trying to record as much as I can what is going on to understand, to be able to look back, to understand the train of events better. Um, so, given that, um, let's talk. Have you talk a bit about the the, the background and the wider context context that that you know allowed these protests to to really explode? I think to at least for out from for outsiders, uh, really surprising considering that Belarus is you know been under a you know essentially a dictatorship for the last twenty six years or so under the rule of Alexander Lukashenko, uh, and here you just have this amazing um you know explosion of, of of political as a friend put it to me like people becoming political subjects well uh starting with the dictatorship well i believe that what we had used to be authoritarian populism well we of course can now debate about what's a dictatorship what's uh, what's not but i do believe that well what we had was somewhat different and uh belarus is this place where for the last, well, a couple of decades, for the last decade, people lived pretty comfortably. So, well, it shouldn't be presented as one of those devastated states, you know, when people rise, where people rise because, you know, there's, there's no food and, and etc. There's uh, general health care, uh, free health care. There's uh, state-supported child care at nominal price and very, very good child care. So these things that we uh, that well have been with with us since the uh, socialist period. At the same time, uh, well, uh, at the same time, of course, there wasn't freedom of speech, at least at the state level. If you lived uh, your own life and and you read stuff on the internet, you could be very comfortable. But what was going on at the state level and what was going uh, elsewhere? These were uh, very very different things. At the same time, Belarus has become a big IT, IT nation. Information technology has always been a big thing there. And at some point, Lukashenko realized that, well, uh, IT information technology really needs to be supported. If, if the uh, country, if the nation wants to develop, well, we need the revenue. And uh, he created, well, not he, the government, of course, uh, created this a park with technology, the well, uh, in translations would be the the park of high technologies, the high tech park, and he gave some pre and he gave some well uh, preferences, tax preferences to this. So this IT sector began to develop. Now to put it in a nutshell, I think what happened in the last during the last well, 10, 15, 20 years, but probably the last 10 years. Uh, 
a new class class has risen. And when I say a new class in sociology, it, it can be used as a term just to reiterate it for, well, for people who are not sociologists, a creative class, a new urban educated class, people who are expecting somewhat different treatment and people who are expecting a different kind of relationship between, uh, between the people and the state between the citizens uh, and the government. So, well, this is probably the, uh, well, the background, but really, uh, well, so the background has been there, but somehow it happened, well, both expectedly and unexpectedly. For there has been opposition to Lukashenko for the, well, for all those 26 years, and there have been some political parties and some minor demonstrations, etc. but somehow they did not click. Uh, they were very much into the issues of language, into the issues of history, into, well, these uh, more nationalist stuff. And, well, uh, it clicked for some people, but it, not, it did not click for most of the people. But then when uh, elections were announced, well, three months well, from now or five months from now, uh, at, at some point, at some point in spring, and new people appeared on the scene, like Sergei Tikhanovsky, a protest blogger, and, uh, well, Valery Sipkala, who used to be the director of this park for, for a high-tech park. And then uh, Viktor Babarika, who technically was a banker, but a, people, uh, but a person who uh, did a lot for the nation by bringing, uh, by bringing art produced by well, people who were born in Belarus and then immigrated uh, on the Belarusian territory, technically, uh, and, and then immigrated and became like Mark Chagall or Sutin or some, uh, some others. So they were bringing these paintings to Belarus. And so they were, they, they were people with names and they responded to the, to the new class, to the urban educated class, not only to them, to lots of people. So these new people appeared and how they started speaking about different things, not just language or something like that, and that clicked. And let me let me just, let's go into the the class uh, part a little bit more because, from my understanding, is that uh, especially with the the social welfare state, that uh, a major constituency for um, Lukashenko's rule is this industrial working class uh, rule, this older class that's hung on through the post-Soviet years. Um, but here you have, and, and, I, and I, you see this in other post-Soviet states in the region, this, the, the generation of this new class. And I would assume that a, a, the majority of members of this new class are people who don't have, for the most part, an experience of living under the Soviet Union. They're fairly young, perhaps in their 30s and 40s. Um, where does, where does the, this, the, this class of, say, for lack of a better term, kind of working class, working people constituency, how did they fit in in relationship to this new class? Well, uh, this is really interesting. Well, in a way, probably Belarus is is a kind of an abnormal post-industrial state. For in most uh, in most post-Soviet nations, well, these and uh, the Soviet Union that was an, uh, a, a great industrial economy. Uh, so, but in the that after the transition, a lot of that industrial economy 
uh, of course, was deconstructed. Well, the process that is taking place everywhere in the United States and, and, and elsewhere, uh, industrial economies is going away. Lukashenko probably was trying to uh, was trying to save, to rescue, to keep that that industrial economy, the industrial giants uh, of of Belarusian economy, uh, like the uh, enterprises of the plants producing these tractors or very heavy lorries or, or some other things. Of course, the main market for these products used to be and is. Uh, at this point, point the Russian Federation. But well, what I'm trying to say uh, that to have a working class of this kind, an industrial working class, you, you you need to have industries. So he was able to retain some of the industries in this in post-industrial society, and this is really an interesting phenomenon, really. So uh, at some point, it all started the uh, going back to the elections and all and all that something that we call a uh, division or movement or mobilization, probably mobilization is the correct word. It all started, of course, with people mostly in cities rising first. But then people in smaller cities, people in towns started to join. People would form lines to put their signatures in favor of candidates for, for, for the candidate to be registered. He or she needs to have a certain amount of signatures. And at some points, it became clear that workers were interested in what was going on as well. And then after this police brutality, after the election, after this unbelievable police brutality of August 9th, August 13th, when really people went out, huge demonstrations against against state violence and police brutality. At some point, workers joined. And I remember, well, August the 16th, I think it was, or, well, it was Friday, so probably August the 15th. Uh, yes, uh, August the 15th, the first huge demonstrations with, with people from, uh, from uh, Minsk industrial plants marching together with other citizens. Well, there, there might be several reasons for that. Uh, of course, uh, well, these industrial enterprises, these big industrial, these industrial giants, well, they have their problems. They have they have their issues. Uh, Russia is their main market, or probably their only market, and there are issues with that. And uh, the uh, workers might consider that they are not reimbursed adequately for what they're doing. But at the same time, the way Lukashenko has been treating people for the last, well, several months is really disrespectful. For example, when when the pandemic started and all the nations have um, had this isolation and quarantine, Belarus did not have any quarantine. It doesn't mean that nothing was done, of course, but somehow people organized immediately, people started collecting money for masks, etc. There were lots of volunteers, but when the first person died of coronavirus in Belarus and Lukashenko, and he was 73 or something, uh, and Lukashenko in his speech mentioned him and said, well, but uh, by saying something like, look, but why do you go out when you are old enough and, and you should stay home? And, and, and people, that was really, so the way he was talking to people, the way he was treating people was really disrespectful. And then after this police brutality, it became really unsafe 
to be out in city streets because these police units, they would go after, well, mostly men, but some women as well. And quite often they would go after people who were, you know, taking out the trash, taking out garbage and, and they would be captured. So it became unsafe to be outside. So, and it is interesting when you look at these demonstrations and especially at the pickets. People protest demonstrations, they unite everyone. Everyone comes together. But during the pickets, the way people are picketing, well, this is the staff of hospital number six. This, these are the teachers. This is the staff of this park of new technologies. These, these are the people, this, the, the people are going on strike uh, at some industrial enterprises. So people go out as collectives. And this is interesting. I haven't seen such things well taking place as where elsewhere recently. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, about about this uh, this issue of dignity, um, because this is something that, of course, you know, I, I mostly uh, focus on Russia and the 2011-2012 protests was also had this this um, um, theme of dignity. Uh, you know, the people being basically the state f just blatantly falsifying elections. Uh, also, the fact the way Putin announced his comeback in, in 2011 uh, just really, you know, it, 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 it struck people as them being tr the state treating them like children. Um, and, and you see this, this language of dignity throughout the region and a lot of protests. Uh, talk a bit of, more about this the issue of dignity as this unifying force in Belarus? Well, uh, this is really an interesting question. For the issue of dignity is somewhat suspicious, a little bit suspicious for social scientists. For Well, uh, historically, uh, it is believed that this uh, issue of dignity uh, as a part of citizenship and, well, historically, citizens, citizens used to be, well, uh, the bourgeois class. Uh, so, and here at these, so it is, it definitely has some, well, classed con uh, context. It doesn't mean that people from belonging to the, well, to the working classes, to, to peasants do not have their own dignity, but it, it is shaped differently. So, and now in these, uh, well, in these protests, several times I've seen several recordings made of these industrial, big industrial plants where a worker would come out and say, okay, at this point, I'm not even talking about economy. I, I'm not talking about economic demands. Uh, but let's try and see who counted for Lukashenko and who counted against Lukashenko. And it is a huge gathering at this plant. And so he asks who, count, who, who voted, who voted for Lukashenko. And a couple of people, the, the manager, the general manager, and a couple of others raised their hands. And now who voted against Lukashenko? And there's a forest, a forest of raised hands. And he says, you see, you see, so the lie was so unbelievable, it was like a slap in the face. So, uh, so citizenship, as we think about citizenship, it is about autonomy. And it is about one status in the in the in the in in polity. So citizenship, dignity is about recognition of people as equal partners. And we can see that at this point, not only this this new middle class which wants to be 
to be regarded as an equal partner to the government, as an equal partner to the state. Quite often people would say, look, you are the government, so we, you exist because we pay our taxes. You exist, and this is a very, well, actually, this is the conversation which started during the, the French Revolution, during the American Revolution. We support you as, as the government, as the state, so you should be our, our representative. So the basis for the claims of these people is we want to be equal partners, we want to be recognized as citizens with rights. So they struggle for recognition. And this takes us to uh, one more interesting point. For Lukashenko, he used to have his support base, and he still has some support base. And he used to be one of those, you know, father state, I'm your father, I'm giving you, well, there, there used to be a certain social contract, there used to be, well, a welfare state with all those benefits. But the idea was that, you no, know, I'm your father, and I'm granting you those benefits, you got you got those, you're getting those benefits from me. And at this point, something is changing when people are starting to say, no, we are the we are the doers of these uh, of these benefits. We are the people who are creating these benefits. So you are responsible to us. So, well, my in in short, briefly, my answer to this would be: this is about autonomy. This is about status. This is about the recognition of people as equal partners with a say. The line of Lukashenko being a father and, uh, a, you know, this relationship that as he sees it as a, a patriarchal one, of course, begs the question of gender. And what's really fascinating about uh, the the election in Belarus and then the protests is that three women have stepped into these leadership roles, whether they're leadership or symbolic leadership because their husbands were arrested or denied uh, participation. Uh, and you have, of course, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, who is the main one on the ballot, uh, Maria Kolesnikova, and Valeria Sipkala. Uh, talk about the politics of gender and, and these women and, and the, you know, the place they have in this uprising. Well, uh, this is really interesting for these uh, women, well, stepped up uh, because, as you said, men were arrested. Uh, Svetlana Tikhanovsky, husband Sergei Tikhanovsky, who uh, this protest blogger, he was arrested as he was trying to become a candidate for presidency. Then uh, Babarika, this banker Babarika, he was arrested uh, in June, and his son was arrested, who was the head of his, of his well, headquarters. Uh, and Maria Kolesnikova stood up as, a, as, a, as the head of the headquarters. And then Valery Tsipkala had to leave the country because he was going to be persecuted, and his wife remained and step, uh, stood up. And these three women, they joined together into this, uh, this united headquarters. And it is interesting how it was developing, really, for... Well, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, when she began, when she decided to register as a candidate, and then when she was registered as a candidate, she would uh, come out and say, look, I'm a technical candidate. I'm a symbolic figure. I do not have any political platform. Uh, I used to be a housewife. I used to have my family. I didn't want to be the president. But now I want to win and to become the president to have real, honest, free elections for all Belarusians. So this development is really very interesting when she is uh, 
standing up, rising as a substitute. And then in her speeches and by law as a registered candidate, and she had an enormous uh, amount of signatures, so she couldn't deny it to her. Well, so when she becomes a registered candidate, she's uh, allowed to have to make two speeches on, on this national TV. And in those speeches, she the way she talks to the people and the way she talks to the government or the state is the following. My name is Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. I'm 47 years old. Uh, I have this education. I used to work as a teacher and, and as a translator, but recently I've been a housewife with my husband and children, and I did not mean to be a president. It is my husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky, who wanted to be the president. And that is why uh, he is now in prison. And I, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, am running for the president of this country to give all of us free and honest election. And this is really a remarkable trajectory of citizenship. Someone standing, starting as a, I'm a housewife, but I'm also a citizen. And when the time comes, I'm ready to take over and contest the government, contest the state, to give the people, uh, the, people the freedom to have their voices. And this is interesting because, well, previously... Well, uh, there have been all these conversations. Are we ready to have a female president if someone runs, if, if, if a woman runs for presidency? Can it happen? And, and 60% say no, and, and 45% uh, say yes, etc. Now there's no question. The question has been resolved. Yes, women are ready to be, to be presidents, and women are recognized as political actors, and women have been running this, this campaign now for, th for three months. They, women are recognized as equal actors. Of course, uh, well, this is probably, this should be a separate question. This is a somewhat separate issue. Gender does not go away. As we look at protests, we can see that uh, these terrible Amon riot police or, well, this task force or, or, or law enforcement, they treat men and women somewhat differently. We understand that for, for beating women publicly, detaining women publicly. Uh, well, this is very, very bad publicity. No government uh, wants to have that. But we can see that women have been recognized as political actors, absolutely. And this is, well, a great thing, I believe. Yeah, it's it's it sounds like, you know, she she's able to I mean, I don't know, of course, can't say how conscious she was in this this positioning. Um, but she she also played this in it as as being this political subject that makes this speech. She also seems to position herself as a vessel in which people can insert themselves and insert their sense of dignity in her, right? Here is this housewife, et cetera, et cetera. And they saw, they could see themselves or at least see her standing in for themselves as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, one of the things uh, about these protests, you know, they 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 seem, uh, you know, like in a lot of of mass protests, people are united around this common enemy who is, you know, Lukashenko, and and his circle. Um, within the protests, what kind of vision of Belarus uh, do do various segments of within the protest movement have? Like if if Lukashenko is kicked out, what kind of Belarus do they do they envision? Well, uh, this is really a, a big and interesting question, and 
there's a general general sense uh, in society that we are now stuck. We would be mo- we need to be moving somewhere, and of course uh, the discussion has been going on for a little bit about what the program uh, should be. But there's no clear vision of the program yet for there's this goal to remove the unlawful, unlawful government and start formulating the vision, etc. Of course, the people who were, well, these protest bloggers like Sergei Tikhanovsky, they were talking about, well, it's, it's, it's unfair and, and uh, the, the economy is stuck. Of course, uh, well, Babarika, who was, is, uh, is this uh, bank, he has uh, some vision of uh, privatization and more of a market, more of a market economy. But it is still, to my mind, it is still very much, uh, very much in the air. Well, of course, people are debating, people are discussing these things. And the debates that I can see on the internet and, and uh, from what I read, it looks like the division has been okay. So there's this welfare state. And now these, neo- these neoliberal, terrible neoliberals are coming. They want to privatize everything and to create this terrible social inequality, etc. So there have been these two poles. And at the same time, there are, of course, voices that do we only have these two options? One option is to have a welfare state without the freedom of speech, with terrible oppression, with detentions, etc. And on the other hand, all the freedom you want and neoliberal uh, social inequality. Can we really create uh, something like social democracy with both the welfare state and the rights for the citizens? So these are the debates, but mostly, well, what's what's going to happen and and what the program is there's not too much discussion of of the future program at this moment all the discussions are about what needs to be done to remove the unlawful government and to to starting to have fair election to have fair elections where candidates are going to be able to to articulate their programs do, do you have a, a a sense if this you know social democratic uh, position has currency. I mean, what is what is your evaluation in terms of you know the the role of any left leaning forces in, in pushing a more social democratic agenda? Well, um, left leaning forces. Uh, who f- the first question would be: Who do we call left leaning forces? For on, for on the one on the one hand, there's this. There are these. Communist parties of Russia, of Belarus, which are in fact these who took over from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, these Stalinist organizations. And they all support Lukashenko and they recognized elections while there has been the, this unbelievable fraud, the number of 80%. I won elections with 80%. This is just not possible. Such numbers cannot exist. Uh, so, but they support him. So these are, are they left-leaning organizations or are they just, you know, these kind of state, uh, state organizations of, of the Stalinist type? And then there are really anarchist leftist uh, groups of people who are, who are leaning left. And, well, I know that some of them participate in protests with everyone else and get beaten and, and uh, are, are in there. And I've seen others who 
believe that, well, both sides are on because this is not a socialist revolution. This is more of a bourgeois revolution. So why bother both? So this is against Balba Jabis Gazuki. This is a toad, a toad against a snake. Bo both, uh, well, metaphorically speaking, both are ugly. So there are, well, some different positions uh, in, in, in this regard. So, but yesterday, well, uh, and I wonder how people people see this internationally. For well, I have this teaching assistant of mine, an excellent guy at the university, and I talked to him yesterday, and he follows the the well as much as he can um, the situation in Belarus, and he says, and he said, look, I'm a leftist, and I know that the Communist Party supports Lukashenko. What should I do? Whom should I who, whom should I believe? And this is really interesting because, well, where do I start to explain that this current Communist Party of Russia, of Belarus, are really state uh, type uh, Stalinist organizations? Speaking of this, in terms of um, the 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 international discussion around the protests in Belarus and what is happening now, I've seen on the one hand some trying to make comparisons between Belarus right now and Ukraine in 2014. And then I've seen others try to fit the protests in Belarus and the fight against Lukashenko within this larger geopolitical struggle between the so-called West and Russia. Uh, what do you think of both of these conversations that are going on? Where do you, where do you stand on this? Well, uh, this is really a huge question with Lots of smaller questions in it. First of all, the uh, this issue of Ukraine, uh, the uh, latest huge uh, color colored revolution was the one in Ukraine, and now people are trying to explain what is going on in in uh, in Belarus by comparing it to Ukraine by saying this is a Ukrainian scenario. It is not. Uh, well, this is not about nationalism issues. This is not about language. There's no division between the east of the country and the west of the country. Well, there might be some differences, but there's uh, there's no uh, uh, this division. And uh, if you look at the rallies, there are no flags of the European Union. There are well, there's no people chanting that they are against Moscow, and there's no Russophobia. Uh, so it's it's really different. This is more of the uh, well citizens against Lukashenko and against the uh, against the government. At the same time, of course, there's this issue of symbols, and uh, people picked over picked uh, this uh, white red white flag, which sometimes is is associated with uh, lots of different things. But this is at this point, this is not a national flag. This is uh, a symbol of people people's protest. So this is one thing, and then uh, this geopolitical thing about about the East and about the, the West, and well, probably, probably at some point, if you stretch it far, far away, you can uh, you can see this uh, in this perspective, uh, in this perspective, really. But it is not as clearly defined, and. Of course, Lukashenko has built his campaign, has been building his campaign on safeguarding or protecting Russia, protecting Belarusian sovereignty against Russia, because there has been, pro there has been this project with which he has been playing for the last 
25 years of uniting Belarus and Russia into one union, uh, union state. Uh, well, and and for that he has been able to get to get oil at discounted prices from Russia, etc. So uh, this is a long story. But and then so he was building his campaign as he was trying to to protect Belarusian sovereignty against Russia. And then as elections were starting, there were military exercises. Uh, NATO military exercise, I think, in 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 in, in Poland, close quite close to the northwestern border of of, uh, of of Belarus, and I think at this point he became really concerned, and he uh, he reverted his position 180 percent, and he uh, well he started claiming that well NATO and Poland have has this project of uh, of enacting the city of Grodno and Grodno region um, and so we have to protect our borders and he, we have to protect our nation. He has been playing with that and he started calling Putin and Putin and asking for, for help uh, and, and Putin uh, assured him that he fully, that he recognizes the elections, the Russian Federation recognizes the election, there's complete full support from the Russian Federation and if some looting or uh, disquiet takes place in the streets. He has reserved some uh, law enforcement units and he is ready to, to send these law enforcement units to Belarus. But interestingly, so far these protests have been unbelievably peaceful. There are marches of, of 200,000 people in Minsk, really unbelievable numbers of people, not one shop window broken so far. So we see this rhetoric of support from, from Russia, from this official Russia, at least. So, and Lukashenko has been trying somehow to play with this side, with that side, but at this point he definitely needs, needs some support to stay in power. What about the role of the police? Um, you know, when you unleash uh, cops like this on the population, there's always some threat that you'll have, you know, mutinies. And, and there were, you know, some small, there were some isolated incidents of police, you know, move, moving to the protesters. What what role does the, the police as a constituency play in Belarus? And and where do they, where are they as a group in, in this political drama? Well, um, on the one hand, there's this, well, riot police. And during this, well, this pacifying operation, uh, August 9th, August 12th, they were extremely brutal. And especially when people were put into detention uh, in Minsk, this uh, prison jail, jail on a, uh, on a Krestina street, the brutalities that reportedly took place there, they were absolutely terrible. And that's uh, after that people rose and it became clear, well, that you cannot have this, well, this uh, amount, this level of brutality. So brutality is now not as harsh, but still now they are trying to prosecute and to detain anyone who shows any, who, who well, shows up with protests, who waves flags, etc. So what I see is going on is that they try to, to cut the heads of this Hydra, but, well, unbelievably, 
this hydra has, as soon as they cut one head, there are other heads that they are growing up on the neck of this, of this hydra of, of, of protest. And there's, uh, look, people put out flags, people dance and sing in streets, people wave their flags, people come to prisons and, and chant. People, uh, people go to, to, to the court when someone is detained and, and, and try to argue against, uh, against the detention. So there's an enormous amount of actually mobilization everywhere. At the same time, well, speaking about the police, what do they feel? How do they feel about it? Well, I don't know that, but I can see that, well, some people, uh, started to leave, well, people who are probably at mid-level, at lower level, not a triad police, but a regular police and, and, some, and, and, and courts uh, and legal enforcement and, and legal, legal stuff. Uh, people, some people have been leaving their jobs because they are required, as I can understand it, that they are required to do something that they are not ready to do morally. For example, there were uh, beatings and tortures uh, when with these during these detentions uh, in in mid-August, and when people began uh, making their claims uh, and going to court, no one of their claims, no legal action has been taken so far on their uh, uh, on their complaints, but legal action has been taken against them. Uh, reportedly, you participated in some, well, in these unlawful gather gatherings, and this is a criminal offense, and we're starting criminal offense, uh, offense against you. As for the, well, of course, this is my thinking about, well, the, 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 the reasons of this behavior. At the same time, I can see that people at the very highest level are probably united against the, the elites, are united against Lukashenko. For they understand that, well, uh, if, if uh, they do not stand, un stand united and this government falls, they are going to be prosecuted, and they are, because what they were doing is illegal, is criminal, these are crimes, these are real crimes. So it looks like now there's this elite against the people. And, and finally, you know, Protests and revolutions in post-Soviet space since the collapse of communism um, have contributed in one way or another to a wider national awakening. Um, and in some cases, it's, it's that awakening is more nationalist. Uh, in other cases, it, it has, you know, certainly transformed the identity of being a citizen uh, of a particular country. Um, now, Belarus historically has a very weak ethno-nationalist, you know, identity. Um, nevertheless, you know, how do you, do you see these protests contributing to a, a national awakening in the sense of people's understanding of themselves as citizens of Belarus and political participants? Definitely, definitely. Uh, and, well, I speaking about this orientation east or west, I touched it a little bit earlier uh, in, in this discussion, but now going back for a moment to this again, I cannot see there's this very clear orientation Then there are no flags of European Union, for example, and people are not, um, are, are not prosophobic. At the same time, people 
believe, people see themselves, people identify themselves as the citizens of sovereign and autonomous country, and they want to stay to stay this way. Yes, we are, are Belarusians. We have our own state. We want to be this way. Look at how the government is prosecuting our fellow Belarusians, meaning, well, the citizens of Belarus, Belarus of course. Uh, see how the government is treating us. We are a nation with a, well, with a history. We are a nation with our own consciousness. So we are the people. Definitely, if we think about national awakening, awakening in terms of this, we are the people, it is definitely happening. That was Yelena Gapova, a professor of sociology at Western Michigan University, specializing in gender, class, nation, and social movements in post-Soviet space. She's the author of many, many articles and books, and her most recent book in Russian is The Classes of Nations, a Feminist Critique of Nation Building. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB's podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, and recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank all my patrons for your continued support, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Who are you?